morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. Uh, before I get started, I want to give you an update on the worship tech pastor position. Some of you have been asking me. Uh, the elders voted unanimously, and we now have a signed offer. So I'm happy to announce that Nicholas Preston will be our new full-time worship tech pastor. His start date is tomorrow. All right, so several years ago, uh, Philip Yancey wrote one of my favorite books of all time, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace? So in it, he tells a story of a friend of his who worked with the down and out people uh, in the inner city of Chicago. Uh, I know, and my wife knows a little bit about these folks, because uh, when Jackie and I were in grad school, University of Illinois, uh, we both had graduate assistantships in the Office of Minority Student Affairs, and we served as counselors for many of these uh, incoming freshmen from inner city Chicago, uh, kids whose parents were in gangs, they, uh, they uh, were addicted to crack, and all kinds of other bad things. So this friend of Philip Yancey's um, had a prostitute come to him in a pretty rough state. She was homeless, she was sick, she was unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Um, she was weeping uncontrollably as she told him what she'd been doing with her two-year-old daughter. You can guess what that was. Um, her two-year-old daughter made more in one hour than she could earn on her own in the whole night. Um, she said she had to do it to support her drug habit. So the man said he could hardly listen to her story. For one, he was legally liable to uh, report cases of child abuse, but two, he didn't even know how to respond. I mean, how do you respond when you're faced with such horror? He asked her if she'd ever thought of going to a church for help. He said, I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock on her face. She said, church, why would I ever go there? I'm already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. And then Yancey comments on the story saying that what stood out to him is that women much like this prostitute fled towards Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she was to see Jesus as her refuge. And then he asked this very profound question. He said, has the church lost this gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he was here on the earth, they often don't feel welcome among his followers. So it's commonly said that Christianity is more than anything a religion of grace, and that's true. All right, we sing about grace, we write poems about grace, we name our churches and our children after grace. If you ask any of us, we certainly believe in grace, but it's the outworking and the application of grace where it gets tough. And part of our problem is the nature of grace itself. 
Grace is hard to accept, it's hard to believe, and it's hard to receive. We all have a certain skepticism when the telemarketer calls us and he says, I'm not trying to sell you anything, I just want to offer you a free trip to Hawaii. We start thinking, what's the catch? Because we've all been taught that there's no free lunch. Grace shocks us in what it offers. Grace is not of this world. It frightens us with what it does for bad people, especially really bad people. Grace teaches us that God does for those people what we would never do for them. We probably would save the not so bad, but not the really, really bad. And grace is a gift that costs everything to the giver and nothing to the receiver. It's given to those who don't deserve it, who barely recognize it, and who often don't appreciate it. The doctrine of grace may be the the hardest doctrine in the whole Bible to accept. It's not that grace is hard to understand. We know what the word means. Our problem is in its application. So we begin our journey with the prophet Jonah. Uh, This week we're starting a seven-week series on the book of Jonah. In addition to the sermon each week, I'll be writing a small group study that goes along with that sermon uh, each week of the seven weeks. Um, I would encourage you to um, pick up a copy of the uh, small group study. We'll have a stack of them out in the uh, table in the gathering space. Uh, There is a group you can sign up for that we'll be discussing this. It's um, Matt McGuire's group. They'll be meeting uh, on Sunday mornings before the service, so his first meeting will be next Sunday before the service. Um, But I encourage you to uh, do one of those two things so that you can really dig into this series. If you want an electronic copy, uh, you can email myself or Shelly, and we'll send you a PDF Um, Also posting it on our Facebook page, uh, PDF as well, so you can pick it up there. So I want to make something clear uh, before I start. Uh, Even though his name is the name of the book, Jonah is not the main character of this story. God is. At the beginning of the story, Jonah is running from God. At the end of the story, he's arguing with God. This book is all about God. He is the hero of this story. If you're a numbers person like myself, uh, you'll appreciate this info about the book of Jonah. The fish is mentioned four times. The city of Nineveh is mentioned nine times. Jonah is mentioned 18 times. But God is mentioned 38 times. So even though the book is called Jonah, It's God who's the protagonist. So the story of Jonah has been been represented in art in all kinds of different uh, ways throughout the ages. I just want to share three of them that I found. The first one is Pieter Lassman's Jonah and the Whale from 1621. I like this one because that thing looks pretty creepy. (laughs) I don't Pretty sure Jonah had some more clothes on than that, but <laughs> I guess that was the style of the period. Uh, second one is Salvador Dali's Jonah and the Whale. 
um, Salvador Dali, you remember him. Um, I went to the Salvador Dali Museum, actually, in, in, it's in St. Petersburg, Florida. And most of those paintings we're familiar with, you know, the melting clocks and that kind of thing, they are huge. I mean, they like fill a whole wall. This one's only about uh, 20 inches by 25 inches, just a sketch. Uh, the third is uh, a sculpture by Philip Ratner called Jonah from 1998. I thought that was kind of cool too. I'll share that with you. So contrary to what some people think, the book of Jonah is historical truth. There really was a man named Jonah who fled to Tarshish, who was really swallowed whole by a big fish or a big whale. Uh, the Hebrew in the Old Testament translates it as great fish, but the Greek in the New Testament, uh, when Jesus is referring to Jonah, translates it as whale in the King James, uh, and in the NASB translates it as sea monster. So regardless, uh, there really wasn't this distinction like there is now between fish and a whale, you know, was it a mammal, was it, you know, that wasn't even the grid that they thought through back then, but whatever it was, it was big enough to swallow a man, right? It's from the ocean, swallowed a man. So Jonah really did survive for three days in the belly of this fish, um, and he actually was vomited up on a beach. It's not a myth, it's not a parable, it is not an allegory. When I was first in ministry, I was serving at a, uh, at a Methodist church, and uh, now, the, the Methodist theological umbrella is quite broad, and so there are both theologically conservative church, Methodist churches, and there are more liberal, theolog like theologically liberal Methodist churches. And I happen to serve at a more theologically conservative Methodist church. Um, we had a pastoral intern who was serving with us for a while while he was attending a Methodist seminary, and I remember talking to him, he and I had a conversation about Jonah. Um, I could tell by our conversation that he thought the book of Jonah was just a parable and that Jonah wasn't a real person. And I, I said, you do know that Jesus referred to Jonah as a real person. And I, and then I showed him the following scripture. I'm going I'm to show you. It's Matthew 12, 38 to 41. It says, one day some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want, to show, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights." The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. And so I shared that with him, and a uh, pastoral intern was like, I guess you're right. <laughs> he was a real person. So on that day, I did my small part to combat the teachings of liberal seminaries. Small little contribution. <laughs> All right, so Jonah was likely written 
Uh, between 793 and 758 BC, Jonah came from Gath Hefer, a little town in the northern part of Israel, not far from the village of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Book of Jonah is short. It's only four chapters, 48 verses, just over 1,300 words. Uh, you can read it in about 15 minutes. It is short, but it is very deep and profound. Like I said, this, this book, Jonah, is not so much about Jonah, but it is about God and his amazing grace. Book of Jonah gives us insight into the heart of God, both towards those who run away from him and towards those who are already far from him. God never gives up on Jonah, not even when he runs away, not even when he sits under a vine and pouts. And he hasn't given up on the evil Ninevites either. Some of us identify more with Jonah, right? We have a little bit of Jonah in us, right? We, uh, when we run away from God's presence, when we run away from God's will in our life, or when we judge others who we don't feel deserve God's grace or his forgiveness, on the other hand, some of us identify more with the evil Ninevites, who we'll see later repented of their sin. At some point in our life, we realize the depth of our sin and our need for salvation, and we are so thankful that God didn't give up on us. And so the story begins like this, Jonah 1, 1 and 2 says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. Now it's amazing how just one or two sentences can change our life. You're driving down the highway and you get a phone call and that, that phone call changes your life forever. If it's good news, it changes your life one way. If it's bad news, it changes your life another way. Either way, your life can be turned upside down with just a phone call. Life can turn on a dime. That's what happened with Jonah when God spoke these words, these three little words to him, go to Nineveh. Now, God wasn't asking Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach this message that Oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. This is bad news from Almighty God. The time for judgment has come. And when God said that Nineveh was wicked, right, he wasn't exaggerating. Um, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the most powerful empire in the world at the time. Uh, the Assyrians had a reputation for cruelty that we have a hard time even wrapping our heads around. Uh, when their armies captured a city or a country, they would commit all kinds of atrocities. Um, they're too graphic for me to mention here. Right? I do mention them in, in the small group study, so you can, you can read it there. But I'll put it this way. They were creative, very creative in the mutilation and the torturing of their victims. 
There were numerous boasts of their cruelty found in the ancient records of Assyria. So, needless to say, the Jews hated the Assyrians. The Assyrians were bloodthirsty, they were cruel, they were full of all kinds of idolatry. And for a Jewish man to be told by God to go preach repentance to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was frankly repugnant. It'd be like asking a Jew during World War II to go preach repentance to the Nazis. And with the understanding that there was a very good chance that they would repent and God would forgive them. As far as Jonah was concerned, frankly, Nineveh could just go straight to hell. It's like, go ahead, Lord, just push the button, open the trap door, let him fall straight down into the fiery pit. That is how Jonah felt about Nineveh. There's a German word to describe this feeling. Uh, it's called schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Uh, it's a compound word. First half of the word schaden means damage or harm. Second half of the word freude means joy, right? If you know Beethoven, Ode to Joy, in German it's an die Freude. So schadenfreude, that's the word. It, this word means uh, it's when we gain satisfaction or joy from the misfortune of others. So it's, it's when that person you don't like at work gets turned down for a promotion. Or that girl that was so popular in high school, um, maybe she was like real mean to you. She comes to your 10-year reunion and she's gained 50 pounds and you're happy about it. <laughs> That's schadenfreude. <laughs> That's the feeling that Jonah had. Okay, Jonah was hoping that the Ninevites would be destroyed. Um, he didn't want to see them forgiven. And God was not happy with that attitude. Uh, I think we can all relate to this. I think we can all relate to this attitude, and I will prove it. Okay? Were you happy when Saddam Hussein was taken out? How about bin Laden? You say, oh, that's not the same thing. It is exactly the same thing. The Assyrians absolutely deserved justice. And yet God was offering them mercy and grace. So let's, let's explore this attitude in our hearts. I'll start with some easier examples, and then we'll progress to some more difficult examples. Okay, the question is, do these people deserve God's love, grace, and forgiveness? Okay, that's the question. All right, let's start. People with tattoos. I hope so. <laughs> right? Okay. How about people with body piercings? Sure. How about uh, people who dye their hair purple? Sure. Absolutely. Okay, let's ratchet it up a little bit. 
Okay, how about the alcoholic or the drug addict? Hmm. I think most of us would say absolutely. Okay, let's ratchet it up a little bit more. How about the ex-con, the prostitute? Jesus would say, absolutely. All right, I'm going to ratchet it up even more. It gets tougher now, okay? And it gets, uh, like, starts touching on things that are in our heart, okay? How about the child abuser, the pedophile, the sex trafficker? Oh, that's harder. Do we feel happy on the inside when they get caught? Mm. Yes, I know I have, and I need to repent about these things. It's one thing to feel like, okay, nobody else is going to get hurt. But then there's this crossing of the line, right? God still loves these people too. His heart is to see them repent and be restored as well. Sometimes we think, uh, surely these people have had enough chances. Or we think, no, 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 they have crossed the line. Now it is time for them to get payback. But we learn from the book of Jonah that that is not at all the heart of God. It's pretty clear that Jonah thought these wicked people were unworthy of God's grace and his forgiveness. Right? They committed horrible horrible atrocities, right? In Jonah's mind and his heart, it was time for them to get payback. I mean, it is highly likely that Jonah personally knew some people who had been horrifically tortured and killed. So I'm sure this touched him deeply and personally. But here's the thing. We may not have tortured or killed people, but we definitely have sinned in ways that, frankly, we'd be very embarrassed if somehow the list of our sins were put on public display. For some of us, the longer we've been saved, the more likely we are to have forgotten about our past. We can forget where we came from. We can forget... What a scoundrel we were. How much in need of God's grace every one of us is. Jonah had somehow forgotten how much he needed God's grace and his forgiveness as well. I'm pretty sure, too, that Jonah didn't really think that these people could actually change. Is there anyone in your life like that? Anyone you think is beyond hope, that they will never change. Jonah forgot that the prophets had been preaching to Israel for hundreds of years, and Israel wouldn't listen. And they were supposed to be God's people. God had been so patient with them reaching out to them over and over again throughout the centuries, only to be rejected time and time again. I mean, it is crazy to think about this, right? Think about this. The truth is that in many ways, 
Jonah's own people were further away from God than the Ninevites were. Here's the thing. Israel had the scriptures. Nineveh didn't. Israel had the temple. Nineveh didn't. Israel had prophets. Nineveh didn't. Israel had all these things and ignored them all. Nineveh had none of them. But God was asking Jonah to give them one chance. Just one. And Jonah, remember, right? He was running from God. He was being disobedient. He overlooked his own sin. But he wanted God to destroy the Ninevites for their sin. And that's just not the way God works. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. When we look at the book of Jonah, we have to ask ourselves, why would God pick an unwilling man to go to Nineveh? Right? Weren't there any willing prophets in Israel? Um, Maybe they would have hesitated a little bit at first, but at least they would have said, all right, I'll go. Why pick Jonah? I think God picked Jonah because he reflects the attitude of so many of God's people down through the centuries. Israel was God's covenant people. They were supposed to be his channel of salvation for all people, even those wicked Assyrians. It's right here, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. But they had kept the blessings for themselves. They had lost God's heart for the nations. So let's think about this for ourselves. Is there a Nineveh in your life that you are running away from? Nineveh can be whatever God's asking you um, to do that makes you feel uncomfortable. Nineveh can be the place um, or the people that God calls you to where you absolutely don't want to go. Nineveh can be the people who have hurt you so deeply and God says, go show them grace and forgiveness. Nineveh can be whatever you loathe and whoever you loathe that God still loves deeply. What do you do when God says, go to Nineveh, and it's the last thing you want to do? So when God said, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach against it, we might expect the next verse to read, and Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That's not what happened. Verse 3 says he ran from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. So Jonah 1.3 says, 
But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. So let's take a look at a map. Found a map for you guys. There it is. I like maps. <laughs> I have a friend who collects maps. Kind of cool. Here he goes to a town, buys a map. I don't even know, like, where you buy maps anymore. <laughs> Does it, do they sell them? <laughs> anyway, I digress. <laughs> so Nineveh was 500 miles north and east uh, of where Jonah was. It was a major city on the banks of the Tigris River. Uh, this is in modern-day Iraq, about 300 miles north of Baghdad. Archaeologists have found the ruins of ancient Nineveh outside the city of Mosul in Iraq. So Tarshish, on the other hand, was about 2,000, they think, about 2,000 miles in the other direction in Spain. So there's literally a 2,500-mile gap between God's call and where Jonah's headed. God said, go east. Jonah said, no, I'm going west. Right? The text says that Jonah went down to the port of Joppa. So that's true on two levels. One, to get to Joppa, Jonah had to go down physically to the port of Joppa. But two, by going down to Joppa, he was literally going down spiritually, meaning he was going away from the will of God in his life. Now, next week, we'll cover verses 4 through 16, but as a preview, um, as we look at Jonah's journey in this chapter, uh, we will see that Jonah goes down four times. Right? He went down to Joppa. He went down into the hold of the ship. He went down into the sea, and then he went down into the belly of that big fish or whale. Now, that's not a coincidence. It's a statement about what happens when we disobey God's call, his will for our life. Whenever we run from God, we never go up, we always go down. So why did Jonah run from God? One, he didn't want to go to Nineveh, obviously. Two, he didn't care about Nineveh said that already. Three, he didn't think God should care about Nineveh. Four, he didn't want them to repent. And five, he didn't want a God who loved people like that. So it was perfectly fine with him if God destroyed the Assyrians and sent them straight to hell. Jonah's problem was never really about Nineveh. Jonah's problem was with the scandalous nature of God's amazing grace. So Jonah decides to run from God. We don't know um, if he was wanting to go specifically to the city of Tarshish or he just happened to find a boat that was going there, which would have been pretty amazing. Um, if Jonah just, we don't know if he just happened upon a boat that was headed to a far off place, in this case, Tarshish, but there is a principle here to learn. Um, when we decide to disobey God, there is always a boat going to Tarshish. 
and there's always room for one more passenger. Also, what are the chances that Jonah would have had enough money in his pocket to pay for the fare of a ship going that far? Right? I mean, that's a long trip. Like, he just happened to have that money there, right? So here's the principle. When we decide to run from the Lord, Satan is happy to provide the transportation and the correct fare. So Jonah found a ship. He paid the fare with the money he had. Okay, here's another lesson. Having money can give us options. If you've got money in your pocket, it may actually be easier for you to run from the Lord. I think one of the reasons we see Jesus more often in the poor is this. All they have is God. He is their only option. Okay? So here's another lesson. Um, sometimes we can spiritualize our disobedience. Have you ever said anything like this before? Um, God is calling me to Tarshish. Or they need the Lord in Tarshish too. Or I've, I've prayed about this and I really feel like this is what the Lord's saying. You're essentially playing the God card so that nobody can argue with you. Or, oh, I have peace in my heart about this decision. Or, oh, just look at how all the circumstances lined up. Like, I had the money, the ship just happened to be there. It was going where I wanted it to go. This must be God's will in my life. I know Nineveh needs God, but I'm not the right person to go to those people. Whenever we decide to disobey, we can always find an excuse why. And it's easy to justify uh, wrongdoing, not obeying the Lord with religious language. You ever done that? So at this point, we might ask, how far will God let us go in our sin and our disobedience? Right? Apparently, he lets us go farther than we would let people go if we were God. I mean, God could have arranged things so that the ship was going to like a different port. Um, he could have made it so there was no room on the ship for Jonah. He could have made it so a thief stole Jonah's money. He couldn't buy a ticket. How far will God let us go in our sin and our disobedience? I don't think anyone knows, but remember... We can run from God, but we can't hide. God was with Jonah every step of this journey. And just like us, when, when Jonah was running from God, God was pursuing him. It is God's amazing grace that even allows us to run away. It is God's amazing grace that provides the ship. It is God's amazing grace that sends the storm. We'll get to that next week. It is God's amazing grace that then sends the great fish, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. So as we come to the end of verse 3, which is what we'll cover today, it looks like Jonah's gotten away with it, right? He's run from God. He bought a ticket. 
Now he's on a ship heading for Tarshish, 2,000 miles away. So, so far, his plan looks like it's worked. But God isn't through yet. He's just getting started. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. And that's where we'd all be if it weren't for God and his amazing grace. So I encourage you to come back next week for more of the tale of Jonah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you that when we were running from you, you were pursuing us. You didn't give up on us. Each of us is here right now because of that. God, we, we repent of that thing that's in our hearts where we get joy at the thought of those who have hurt us or wronged us getting what they deserve. We know that's not your heart. Your heart is a heart of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us individually, even prophetically, through this series and the way we need to hear you most. Lord, just highlight those things in each of our hearts that you're working on and bring about that transformation that only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.